evening, Bridge Church family. It's good to be with you once again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to the books of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel. Uh, we will be looking at both of these books tonight. Uh, they're actually one book. Uh, they tell the, the, the one story of uh, King Saul and, more importantly, of King David. But as we continue our study through the Bible, we will be looking at these books tonight. As we start this, let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us your word. Father, we thank you for the ability to open it and to study it and to know you. Do you reveal yourself to us through your word? You reveal to us your purposes and your will. You reveal to us how you work in your world. Reveal to us the realities of sin and death. You reveal to us the realities of your salvation through your Son Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we study uh, the books of Samuel this evening, I pray that you would open them to our hearts and our minds, help us to see uh, the truth of the stories that are contained in these books, help us to see the glory of King Jesus. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Pray now that this time would be honoring to you and it would build up your body. Pray this in your great name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, we're going to try to tackle both of these books uh, tonight. And key word being try. Uh, there's a lot of, of Bible to cover here, and I'm going to do my best to give you uh, a sufficient overview of both of these books to where we understand what's happening, but also how does this fit in the larger story of the Bible? What's Samuel's place in the whole collection of what we call our Bible? Uh, the, the events of the books of Samuel happen approximately between between 1025 and 971 B.C., kind of the time frame that this happens in. Uh, we don't know exactly who wrote the books. Samuel most likely wrote some of First Samuel, the author of Second Samuel, we do not know. The purpose and the theme of the books, however, are much more clear, and they're very clear. The, the purpose is that uh, Yahweh's establishing of the king in Israel becomes clear. That's the whole purpose of First and Second Samuel, to show us that it is God himself who is establishing the throne over Israel. Now, that's significant historically in the life of Israel. It's, it's significant eternally because, as we will see, the throne that God establishes in Israel is the throne that Jesus Christ is seated upon today. A couple of other things that we see happening. We see the covenant to Abraham is continuing to be fulfilled. God made a covenant to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 and again in 15, and that's been progressively fulfilled as we've seen the life of Israel unfold, and that's continuing to be fulfilled. But we also see that the book highlights God's kingship over everything. Now, while we see an, an, an earthly king established, the book is really about God being king over all. Now, we, we see God providentially ruling and guiding everything. We see God's sovereign will, 
his power exercised to accomplish all that he would have done. Everything that God desires comes to pass. Nothing can get in God's way. I can't mess up God's will. You can't mess up God's will. No one can mess up God's will. A couple of other themes that the book touches on is the covenant that God makes with David. We'll see this and just talk about it very briefly in 2 Samuel 7, where God establishes David's throne and he says, Someone, one of your sons, David, will sit on this throne forever. We'll touch on that just briefly, which is ultimately a promise of the Messiah. And something that we haven't done up to this point in our study through the Bible is talk about the topic of covenant. Now, I've made mention of them along the way, but there are seven major covenants that stretch throughout the Bible, and they are crucial to understanding the story of the Bible. They're crucial to understanding what God is doing in the life of His people, what He has been doing, and what He is doing now. And what I want to do is next week we'll take a pause on studying through books, and what I'm going to do next week is we're going to look at these seven biblical covenants. We'll see a covenant made with the creation, a covenant made with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with uh, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and then ultimately a covenant fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But that'll be next week, and we'll come back to that. If you've got your notes, you can see the outline of the books of Samuel. We'll see Eli and his sinful sons. Well, that's how the book opens. We'll see the rise of Samuel the judge. We'll see Saul's reign. And then ultimately the book's really focusing on David the king over Israel. We'll see his ascent to the throne, and then we'll see much of his rule. While the books are numbered, 1st and 2nd Samuel, as I said just a moment ago, they're really a whole. They're not, they're not telling two distinct stories. They're telling one story, and they've been broken up for uh, length purposes. Uh, so we're going to approach them. We're going to approach the overview as a whole. We're going to treat it as a whole. Each of the books highlight God's sovereign rule. Every other book we've looked at up to this point in our study through the Bible has highlighted God's sovereignty, God's total control over everything. And here again in First and Second Samuel, we see that highlighted once again. We see it in God's choosing and anointing of a king. We see it in His rule over Israel through a mediator. He sets up a king, but he doesn't entrust that king with all the authority. That king is to be God's mediator to the people. And we read Samuel in light of the rest of the Bible. And as we do that, we see that Samuel's not so much about King David as much as it is about King Jesus. That's really the whole purpose of Samuel in the Bible, is to point us forward to the coming true king, who is Jesus Christ. But hopefully that will become clearer as we continue on. What Samuel highlights, or one of the number of things that Samuel highlights, is that every king over Israel fails Israel in some way. Now, we're only introduced to the first two here in the books of Samuel, Saul and David. 
But in the coming weeks, as we get into the books of Kings and Chronicles, we will see the rest of the kings of Israel. And every king fails Israel in one way or another. Some more so, some less so. But the point is to say there is a greater king needed. An earthly king isn't going to get it done. There is a greater king needed, which is an indication that Jesus Christ is necessary. Well, we're going to approach our study by looking at the books of Samuel through its three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And if you've read the books and you'll see this, I encourage you to read the books if you haven't. But each of these three characters has significant overlap in the story. And so we'll kind of bounce back and forth, but our major lens to study the books will come through Samuel, Saul, and David. And so let's start with the primary character up front, who is Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges. If you remember when Israel comes out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, and then begins the period of the judges. The judges rule over Israel. They lead Israel for around 400 years. Samuel is the last of the judges. And so the story opens when Eli is ruling over Israel as the judge, and Samuel is yet to be born. It tells us that he's born to a man named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. Now, when we meet Hannah, Hannah is barren. She has no children. And it tells us that Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Peniah, Peniah. And Peniah has many children. But Hannah has none. Now, just a side note. As we study through the Bible, we notice a number of things. Some related to our the major story, and some are just things recorded. And one of the things that is recorded numerous times in the Bible is the issue of polygamy. There are a lot of people, a lot of men in the Bible who have multiple wives. And here we see Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, why the Bible never sanctions any marital union outside of the one man, one woman union commanded in Genesis chapter 2, why it never sanctions any union aside from that, the Bible does not shy away from highlighting people's sin. It doesn't shy away from, it doesn't hide, if you will, the fact that people sin. Because if you remember during the time of the judges, the Israelites were meshing with pagan rituals. They were messing with pagan cultures, and so they were doing things that these pagan cultures did, such as having multiple wives. We will see many biblical characters, including David and Solomon, have multiple wives. Yet the Bible never gives its blessing for this practice. But we see one of Elkanah's wives, Hannah, is barren, and during this time, not having a child was a terrible burden in the Israelite culture, and it caused Hannah lots of grief. And not just, just not only did she have the shame of not having a child on her own, Nina was always chiding her, always making fun of her, always giving her a hard time because she did not have children. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, we read that Hannah cries out to God in her grief, and she asks God for a son. 
She says, Lord, if you'll, if you'll bless me with a son, then I'll give him back to you, and he will serve you all the days of his life. Well, just some interesting things to note from chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says that Elkanah gave to Hannah a double portion of food because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so that's an interesting thing for the writer to note. Not that she was only barren, but that God was making her barren. It was God who kept Hannah from having children. It was God who kept her from being able to conceive and bear a child. What we're hearing here is an echo back to Genesis where Sarah was kept there until the time was right, until the child of promise was ready to be brought forth. And it tells us that God opened Sarah's womb and she bore Isaac. And here, what we see is that God kept Hannah's womb closed until it was time for Samuel to come on the scene. And so in her grief, Hannah cries out to God for a son. God blesses Hannah with a son, and ultimately Samuel is born. But something else we need to note about Hannah's barrenness, her barrenness. What we're seeing with Hannah being barren is a picture of Israel as she is awaiting God's covenant promises to be fulfilled. God will bring his promises to pass in the right time. Hannah would have a child at the right time. Time. Now, that doesn't mean that she didn't grieve in the process. It doesn't mean that she didn't wonder that God care about her and God love her. You see, in our sin, we struggle with those kinds of things. And yet, God's promises will come to pass. Something else we need to note is that Elkanah's other wife, Tanana, had many children. She had many children, and she unjustly chided Hannah. She poked fun at her. The Bible tells us that she would provoke her grievously just to irritate her. And what we will see in this story, in the story of Samuel, is what happens in this family. That God will take the lowly, the humble, the broken down, and he will bless them. Hannah was lowly, humble, and broken down in her grief, and yet God blesses her with a son. And yet God takes the proud, Penina, who, who from the outside, it looks like she has everything that she needs. She is cared for, she has a husband, she has children, and yet God humbles her. He takes her proudness and humbles her. And what we will see in the coming story is that God takes the, the proud, the, the good-looking king, Saul, and humbles him. While he takes the lowly king, David, and exalts him. But when Samuel is born, as I said, Eli is judging Israel. Doesn't tell us a whole lot about Eli, only that he's been judging Israel for a number of years. He has two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who are serving as priests over Israel. And it tells us that they were to be Eli's successors as judges. Well, recall from our study of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers the role of the priesthood. The Levites were to be those who ministered among the people of God. They were to tend to the ministries of the tabernacle, that is, the sacrifices and the, the making of atonement 
for God for the people. They were to teach the people the things of God. They were to live out the things of God as an example for the people to follow. And yet, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 tells us that these brothers, who were the priests of Israel at this time, that these brothers were utterly detestable in the sight of the Lord. It tells us in chapter 2 verse 12 that they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now think about that. They were the priests of Israel tasked with tending to the tabernacle, teaching the things of God, with living out the things of God, and yet they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. It's not something that only happened then. That's unfortunately something that happens now. It's happened all throughout history that people find themselves in a position of religious authority when they do not know the Lord. And not only is that terrifying for those under their care, it's terrifying for them because they will stand in account and give an account to the Lord for what they have done. It tells us that in his 40 years of judging Israel, Eli in his old age had gotten very lax in his judgment especially with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And because of that, God was going to bring Eli's authority to an end. His sons would not succeed him as judges. God would bring their family place in Israel to an end. To an end. And he does it swiftly. He does it almost instantaneously. We read in chapters 1 and 2 that While all of this is happening, Samuel has been born, he's been entrusted to the Lord from Hannah, and he goes to live with Eli. And one night, Samuel senses that God is talking to him with the help of Eli, and Samuel is established as the next judge over Israel. And so, while Eli and his sons are on this downward trajectory, Samuel is beginning to rise as the coming judge of Israel. And so we read in 1 Samuel 4 that the Philistines are, uh, or the Israelites go and make war with the Philistines. They're going out to do battle, and as a part of their battle strategy, they decide it would be good to take the Ark of the Covenant. They remember back to when uh, the Israelites in the wilderness took the ark into the promised land, and that was a sign of God's presence with the people. And so they decide, well, let's just take the ark with us, and that'll guarantee our success. And so their their approach to their battle plans were more superstitious than they were trusting in the Lord. Because Hophni and Phinehas, who were the priests of Israel, who had who controlled access to the ark, and yet who did not know the Lord, agreed. And so here goes the armies of Israel, here comes the ark, here comes Hophni and Phinehas, and in chapter 4 it tells us that the Philistines not only struck down the armies, they struck down Hophni and Phinehas, it also tells us that the ark of the covenant was captured and taken to Philistine territory and put inside the temple of their false god, Dagon. Well, hearing about this, Eli dies. He dies. 
It tells us that someone came and told him that his sons were dead, and that didn't quite bother him because his sons were evil, wicked men. He had rebuked them. He had told them, you can't go on like this. God will bring judgment upon you. But then the messenger tells Eli that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And that is enough to stun Eli. It tells us that at 98 years of age, that's old, even for today, at 98 years of age, it says he fell over and broke his neck because he was a heavy man. Is what the Bible tells us. So in one day, God has removed the evil, wicked, wicked priest from Israel along with the waning, ineffective judge over Israel. God has swept them aside so that Samuel may rise to take his place. But you remember me saying that the ark had been placed in the temple of Dagon and put at the, at the feet of the statue of Dagon. It says the next morning when the Philistines came in that the, that the statue had been had fallen down prostrate in front of the ark. So they stood the statue back up and again it happened again that the, the statue fell down. And this happens a number of times, and it's a, it's a humorous scene, and yet an incredibly serious scene. Because what God is telling the Philistines is that he will not be subject to any false god. That false god, which is, which is just a statue, it will bow down to him. And so the Philistines quickly return the ark to Israel. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and the way that they get it back is quite interesting as well. But in 1 Samuel 7, this is the, the battle has uh, ceased, the ark has been returned, Samuel has now been established as the judge over Israel. In 1 Samuel 7, Samuel leads the people in a ceremony of repentance over the ark. And in chapter 8, we see the story begins to turn towards the kingship. The people begin to ask for a king. And while the books of Samuel, along with the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, all these books, these four books, anticipate the coming kingship. Because if you remember in Judges, it says uh, that during this time, the people had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth closes with the announcement of the establishment of the line of David. And so the expectation is that the king is coming. And yet, here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people's request for a king is portrayed as sinful. But their request is sinful. The people are warned in 1 Samuel 8 against the king. They're warned against the king that they request. But it's not the king itself. It's what the people want. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8... Verse 19, it says, No, the people, this is the people talking to Samuel. No, they said, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And they add this on that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, the, the, the request was sinful because the people only wanted a king who would fight their battles. They were tired of getting beaten. They wanted a king who would rally the troops, who would organize the army. They wanted a king who would be a military conqueror. They did not want a king who would keep them right with the Lord. 
And we know that because of what they say in verse 20, that we also may be like all nations. Now, if you remember our study, beginning back in Exodus with the giving of the law, then in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the whole emphasis of Israel is to be distinct from the nations. God says, you are my chosen people, my possession. I'm going to set you apart with the law. You are going to act differently to show that you are my chosen people. And yet here they say, so that we may be like all the nations. They say, we don't want to be distinct anymore. We want to be like the rest of the people. And so Samuel says, this is a sinful request. They are essentially rejecting God as their king. Saying we don't want a king who's just going to make us godly. We want a king who's going to do what we want him to do. You see, we see this today in so very many ways. We see it with people in government. Most people today, or I won't say most people, a lot of people today don't necessarily want a healthy government who are gonna, who's going to make good decisions for everybody. A lot of people just want people in government who are going to benefit them individually. We see this in churches as well. We see this in a lot of organizations. People don't necessarily want healthy leadership. They want leadership that will benefit them. And that's sinful. And that's what we see here in Samuel. Israel didn't want a king that was going to honor God and lead them to honor God. They wanted a king who would serve them. And so we see Saul come to the forefront. We see Saul chosen as king in 1 Samuel 9. And things start well enough for Saul. He, when we meet Saul, he's humble. He's from the smallest of the, of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And there's no reason to think that in the beginning Saul isn't humble. He, the text very much seems to indicate that he is. And when it comes time to introduce him, he's hiding in some luggage. He's hiding in some baggage. I'm convinced that he is called to be king. But initially, Saul leads people in military victories. He leads them to succeed, and so things are looking bright. In chapter 12, we read that Samuel leads the people in a covenant renewal. Saul has been established as the king. Things are going well. Things are on the up and up. They have a military leader in on the throne. And Samuel, as he's coming to the close of his days, warns the people. He leads them in a covenant renewal ceremony, but also gives them a very stark warning about what is to come. Look at chapter 12, verse 20. It says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Now notice, that's a semicolon. Do not be afraid, semicolon. That means change of thought. We shouldn't read it as, do not be afraid, although. Samuel saying, do not be afraid, new thought. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things. They cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people unto Himself. 
So Samuel's doing a couple of things. He's telling the people, don't be afraid, because God is faithful. He's confronting them with the reality, yet you have been evil, you have been wicked, you have done wrong things in God's sight. Don't be afraid. Understand what you've done. Third, recognize salvation is not based on you. Salvation is based on God's promises. You see, Israel's destiny is tied to Yahweh's name, tied to God's integrity. So Samuel is saying, be confident in the Lord because God has promised to make you his people. God has promised to save you. He will uphold his promises to you because you are his people. You see, Israel's greatest need, Samuel tells us, Israel's greatest need is not for a king. It's for a heart that rightly worships God. The greatest need wasn't for a king, even for a military, uh, a conquering king. That's not their greatest need. Their greatest need is for a heart that is oriented towards God to worship Him rightly. And the book tells us that's, that's something that no earthly king can achieve. And so the biblical picture of Samuel is that Samuel is an obedient man. He's a faithful leader, a faithful follower of Jesus. And so some applications that we can draw from Samuel's life. There's a lot, but I want to give us just a few. What we see with Samuel is a picture of godly leadership. His ministry is centered around hearing from God as a judge, speaking for God, but also in obeying God in his own life. What made Samuel a good leader is that Samuel was a faithful follower of, of, of God in his life. Samuel trusted God rather than trusting men. He knew man is sinful. Therefore, rather than trust the leader blindly, Samuel was a man of the word of God. So everything about our lives should be structured around the word of God. No leader possesses all that he needs by himself to lead well. And Samuel exhibited that by holding himself fast to the Word of God. This is why uh, our major ongoing function as a church is surrounding ourselves around the Word of God. This is the single most important thing we can do as a church, to hear from God, from His Word. This is also why the pulpit is the central piece in a Baptist church. The architecture even is meaningful because what we say by how we arrange our building is that the Word of God is the central thing in our life as a church. What we see is that Samuel walked in faithful obedience. And he is a good example for us how we should seek to lead our own lives. But along with Samuel, we see Saul. We see Saul, who is the first king over Israel and Saul is an impressive man marked by self reliance. He's an impressive man. When we meet him in, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says he's a head taller than everybody else. He, he looks like a king physically. As Saul is rising to the throne, Samuel is warning Israel. Saul's on his rise, Samuel is warning Israel. And in chapter 13, we see that Samuel kind of fades into the background as Saul steps into the forefront. As I said, Saul's reign gets off to a good start, but then it takes a, a turn downhill, and it never goes back up. 
for the rest of Saul's reign, which is about 40 years. It just, it's a downhill turn. It helps us to see, First Samuel, Samuel helps us to see that while Saul was physically impressive to look at, and while he did, in fact, sit upon the throne as king over Israel, Saul's major problem was that he was impressive to himself. Everybody else thought he was impressive because he was big, he was handsome, he stood out. And those are the very things that Saul believed about himself. You see, unlike Samuel, who was humble and obedient to Yahweh, Saul was disobedient, proud, presumptuous, and cowardly. Here we see a flashback to Hannah and Penina. We see the humble and the proud. We see a flashback to Samuel, the humble, and to Hophni and Phinehas, the proud and the arrogant and the disobedient. There's this theme that runs throughout the books of Samuel. Well, Saul's initial victory over the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is followed up by an act of grave disobedience. He is to await Samuel's presence to offer a sacrifice, and yet Samuel is a bit late getting there, and so Saul, in his presumption, decides to offer the sacrifice on his own. And Samuel gets there and tells us just after the sacrifice, and he rebukes Saul for thinking he could have done that on his own. And it tells us in chapter 13 that Samuel tells him, your kingship is going to come to an end. And it won't be passed on to Jonathan, your son, that in your wickedness, God is going to strip you of the throne. And so this disobedient, faithless behavior becomes the norm for Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, God commands Saul to utterly wipe out the Amalekites and everything that they own all their animals, all their gold. And yet when Samuel arrives, he finds that Saul hasn't done that. Saul has wiped out the people, but he's kept back some of the animals and some of the riches. And when he confronts Saul about it, Saul acts like it's an act of righteousness. He says, well, I've, I've kept aside the best, so as to sacrifice it to God. Yet the true reason comes out in chapter 15, verse 24. Saul says, uh, I'm, I'm scared of these people. I'm scared of what they might think. I want them to think well of me. And this comes up again in chapter 15, verse 30, in the midst of a rebuke where Saul tells, uh, where Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom is being stripped from him. And instead of repenting, Saul says to Samuel, well, can you at least make the people think well of me? I understand what, that, that God is not pleased with me, but can you make sure all the people have good thoughts about me? Well, it's at this point that we're introduced to David, the future king of Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. You see, the, the kingdom that Samuel said would be stripped from Saul is now being stripped from Saul. Because in First Samuel 16, we meet David, who is anointed the future king over Israel. We read that God calls Samuel to go and anoint David. Uh, Jesse lines up all of his sons, and Samuel looks at the oldest son and says, Well, surely he looks like a king. This must be the one. And God says no to all of the sons. So Samuel has to ask, Is there, is there another one? 
And Jesse said, well, there's the youngest, but he's a shepherd boy. He's ruddy. He's out in the field. Surely he can't be the one. And, and ultimately, that's David, this young, ruddy, runt of a son who is to be the future king over Israel. And so in 1 Samuel 16, God is teaching Samuel what to look for. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it's important that we pay attention to the language. Look back at verse, chapter 16, verse 7. Do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because what follows in 1 Samuel 17 is David's encounter with Goliath, who everybody is terrified of because of his appearance and the height of his stature. Now, God is saying, don't choose the king based on his appearance and the height of his stature because God looks at the heart. And so we see that all the brothers of David are rejected. The smallest, the lowliest, the most, the, the most humble is chosen because of his heart. And then we're immediately given this picture of how that works out practically. Because in, seven, in, 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 in 1 Samuel 17, David encounters Goliath. It's an impressive story in itself. It's a very popular Bible story, Sunday school story, but it's, it's, it serves a larger function in the story of Samuel. First, it's a physical explanation, as I said, of chapter 16, verse 7. Everybody looks on the outward appearance. They're either taken with it and love whoever it is that's big and strong and beautiful, or they're terrified because he's big and strong and evil. But the second thing it does is it serves to function, it serves to highlight this difference between David and Saul. Saul, the king over Israel, one who is, is tall and strong and handsome himself, is too terrified to go out and face this giant. But David, who at this point is a young boy, David, full of God's power, full of trust in the Lord, walks out to face this giant because he knows God is bigger than Goliath. And so we see David, the boy full of faith, that goes out and conquers Goliath, while Saul, the king, towers his tent. First Samuel 17 is doing a number of things, but what it's doing is highlighting that Saul is this fake king. David is the true king. Saul is the king that people wanted. David is the king that the people need. And so the rest of the book details Saul's descent into ruin. And this comes by his jealousy over David. That when they get back into Israel from the defeat of the Philistines and the defeat of Goliath, the people celebrate David more than they do Saul. And it tells us that God removes his spirit from Saul and sends a spirit to torment him. He begins to be jealous of David, and then this jealousy turns into this murderous rage. And he spends the rest of his life trying to, at various points, kill David. David, who is humble and 
full of faith, has an opportunity on numerous occasions to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He understands that God has put Saul in his place, that God has a purpose for Saul, that God is a God of justice, that God will execute justice in his time. It's not for David to take it into his own hands, so he trusts God. But possibly Saul's most godless act towards the end of his life, we see this in 1 Samuel 28. God's removed his presence from Saul. He's not communicating with Saul. Saul feels left all alone, and so Saul goes to consult a medium. In 1 Samuel 28, it says he goes, and this medium calls up Samuel from the dead. Samuel's died by this point. It doesn't tell us how this happens. It just tells us that it does happen. Now, keep in mind, Saul had banished mediums and necromancers from the land. He had previously done this. It is illegal to consult a medium, and yet here, in his, in his, in his rage and his fear and his feelings of helplessness, he goes and consults this medium. Well, just a few chapters later, we read that Saul finds himself in a battle with the Philistines. His son Jonathan and his other sons are there with him. And that the Philistines begin to rout Saul. They begin to wipe out the army. And Saul realizes that the battle is lost and that they're going to kill him. And it tells us towards the end of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31, that Saul, in an act of cowardice, kills himself. He looks to his armor bearer and he tells him, will you kill me? And the armor bearer won't do it, and so it says that Saul falls on his own sword, and he dies. His sons die. Jonathan, his son, dies in battle. But he dies by suicide when his army is defeated by the Philistines. And yet we read that this is God's judgment of Saul. Later on in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, when the chronicler is recording this incident, it says that Saul fell on his own sword, meaning he committed suicide, and yet the chronicler writes in verses 13 through 14 that God put Saul to death. So the chronicler is giving us a peek behind the curtain where God is working behind the scenes to carry out all that he will, whereas Saul made a choice to kill himself, to put himself to death. He made a choice to commit suicide. It also tells us that it was God's judgment that God put Saul to death. And so ends the reign of Saul. Well, here's some applications to draw from Saul's sad life. We must clearly know the danger of sin, the dangers of self-interest. Saul was concerned with himself. He was concerned with holding on to what he had. He was concerned with trying to make sure everybody thought well of him. And in all of that, he was concerned about everybody else except what God thought of him. We must know the importance of confession of sin. What we see with Saul is that sin leads us astray. Hiding sin causes it to grow inside of us, bringing further decay like Saul. And like Saul, we might find ourselves rationalizing our sin as acts of holiness. When God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, he kept some back and said, well, I'm going to offer them to the Lord as a sacrifice. He was trying to rationalize his sin as an act of holiness. And brothers and sisters, we do that all the time. 
We try to make excuses and say, well, I was just doing something to honor the Lord. I was just doing something as an act of worship. We try to rationalize our sin as holiness. Something else you see with Saul is that Saul was fearful of men. He was he, he feared man over fearing God, which led him into sin. Something else that we should note is that we should seek service that is humble and hidden rather than boastful and public. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We should seek service that is humble and hidden. But lastly, I want us to look at David. We've seen Samuel, we've seen Saul, but now I want us to look at David in the time we have left. Whereas Saul was an impressive man marked by self-reliance, David is an impressed man marked by faith. He was an unimpressive man to look at. He was most likely small. He wasn't kingly in his appearance. But yet in his unimpressive appearance, he was a man deeply impressed by God. Unlike the armies of Israel, who were impressed with fear at the sight of Goliath, David, as a teenage boy, was more impressed with the power of God, which made Goliath look small. In 1 Samuel, David's main role is staying alive and awaiting the throne. And in 2 Samuel, we see David ascending to the throne. 2 Samuel is about David's reign on the throne. But a couple of things we, we see that we that's important to note. We see David's holiness in how he deals with Saul. David's faith provides a picture of what is supposed to characterize the nation of Israel. As David deals with Saul's rage, he deals with it in holiness. He doesn't take vengeance on Saul. He doesn't doubt God's trust. Or he doesn't doubt God's faithfulness to him. He entrusts himself to God, and he lives by faith. And that's what's supposed to characterize Israel. In chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel, while Saul is growing jealous of David, we see David refusing to take action against Saul. And so we see his holiness comes out in his interactions with Saul. You see, David was the kind of guy who made you want to love God just by being around him. David was that guy whose faith was evident. It was contagious. His joy in the Lord was motivating to those who were around him. David was a leader who knew what servant leadership was. David's leadership empowered others to succeed. It empowered others to know and honor and love God. And David's leadership was both in God's hand and always pointing people back to God. We see that God blesses David as he assumes leadership over Israel. God blesses David's ascent to the throne. He's not acting like a king. David executes the Amalekite who killed Saul. It tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that even though Saul committed suicide, he didn't quite get the job done. So an Amalekite stumbles upon him and finishes the job and comes to brag about it to David, thinking that David will reward him for killing his enemy, and David executes the Amalekite for killing the Lord's anointed. In 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 4, Saul's son, one of them, tried to overthrow David's rule, and yet God intervenes and it proves unsuccessful. 
Chapter 5 records two significant military victories for David as he consolidates his power over Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, where he's established his, his, his capital city. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about God's promise to David to establish his throne forever. His will be an eternal throne on which God himself will rule. We'll talk more about that next week. Chapter 8 is kind of the, the, the height of David's rule. Chapter 9 shows us how beneficent David is as he extends grace to one of Jonathan's sons. Chapter 10 is filled with more military victories as, as David's uh, kingly rule is established more and more and more. And what we see is that David is a great ruler over Israel who rules in righteousness. And because he rules in righteousness, the nation flourishes. Under Saul, who ruled in unrighteousness, the nation did not flourish. The nation suffered. And yet under David, whose rule is righteous, the nation flourishes. He was a good king because he knew that his authority was not final. He was a good leader because he knew that his authority came from God. And so he always led under God's own authority. The Bible portrays David as the most prayerful of the kings of Israel. He wrote many of the Psalms that we read in our Bible. And so here's some applications that we can draw from David's life. While much can be said and preached from David's life, we ought to notice the role and the benefit of godly, humble leadership for God's people. The benefit of godly, humble leadership. See, when Israel had a good and godly king, she flourished. She conquered her enemies. She was blessed with peace. She expanded her borders. And there's a lesson here for the New Testament church. When the church follows the leadership structures of the New Testament, filling those positions with God-called, scripturally qualified men, the church flourishes under the Lord's blessing. When David, who was the chosen king, ascended to the throne and reigned in righteousness, the nation flourished. And the same lesson is true for the church. When we are obedient to God's word, following the established patterns of God's word, God will bless that. But we also need to note that David sins. David is one of the most spectacular leaders in all the Bible. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And yet, we also see the Bible being very honest about David's sinfulness. And the book of 2 Samuel records two major sins in David's life. These were obviously not the only sins, but they were two of the, the biggest sins. We'll look at them backwards. In chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, it tells us that David sins in taking a census. It doesn't tell us why the census is sinful. But perhaps it's because David took it to boost, to boost his pride. When he takes the census of his armies, we find that he has a 1.3 million man army. That's huge even in today's numbers. And so perhaps David took that to remind him that he is a conquering king, that he can do what he wants. But for whatever reason, it was a sinful census, and the Lord punishes David. And he says for his census, for his sinfulness, the Lord sends a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 Israelites died 
because of David's sinfulness. But perhaps the most well-known of David's sins comes in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he sins with Bathsheba. You see, chapters 11 through 20 of 2 Samuel span about 10 to 15 years of David's life, and they were perhaps the most difficult period of David's life. Chapter 11, we read that David saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop from his palace, that he sent for her, that he took her, that he slept, slept with her, and that she becomes pregnant. And then when David finds out about this, he tries to make, he tries to cover it up and deal with it quietly, and it ends up having to murder her husband, Uriah. He doesn't have to murder her, that's just what he does. But he tries to cover that up. But because we live before the face of God, God knows all that we do. And so while Israel remained ignorant about what David was doing, God knew. And as we have highlighted in our past studies, God does not allow leadership to go on unpunished. God holds those in leadership to higher standards. And so David, who is the king over Israel, who is tasked with leading the people to be right before God, has sinned in this grievous way, and he's trying to cover it up. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke David. And in chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, Nathan rebukes David for his sin. The Lord tells David through the prophet Nathan that he has despised his word, that in making this sinful decision, David has broken God's law, he's flouted God's authority, he's betrayed God's rule. And when you despise the words that come out of God's mouth, you despise his character. You despise his person. You despise God. And Nathan tells David that his consequences will be the death of that child. She Bathsheba was with child, and we see that that child dies. And the Lord also tells David that the sword will never depart from his house, meaning that there will be conflict among David's family. David's sin was against God, but it also was a personal affront against Bathsheba, against Uriah. He sinned against himself. He sinned against his family. And because he was in leadership over Israel, he sinned against all Israel. You see, we must understand that, that our sin affects others. No sin is ever ultimately hidden. God sees it. And its effects are never contained. We somehow, we for some reason, think we can contain the effects of our sin, and yet we can't. We see that put on display here with David. But we also see that there are consequences to David's sin. In chapters 13 and 14, David's children sin violently against one another. There's rape, there's murder. Chapter 15, David's son Absalom attempts to overthrow David and take the throne for himself. Succeeds for a time, but ultimately dies. And in chapter 18, David has to mourn the death of yet another child. He said to mourn the death of Bathsheba. He and Bathsheba's child, he's had to mourn the death of one of his sons that Absalom killed, and now he has to mourn the death of Absalom. 
In chapters 19 and 20, David faces internal strife from the men of Judah, another rebellion against his kingship. After this monumental rise to the throne and all of these military victories and all of the peace that he had achieved for Israel under God's blessing, his sinfulness has brought all of this on him. See, aside from Jesus, David's life is probably the most fully recorded life in Scripture. We see him at his best, and we see him at his worst. And while there's much that can be said, I want to say this as I close. We can and should take note of how David responds to his sins before the Lord. Saul was confronted, and yet Saul pushed back. Saul would not be humble. Saul would not respond in faith. And yet David is rebuked in his sin, and it is instructive for us for how we deal with our sins. You see, we see David repent. Saul never repented, but we see David repent. We can actually read his repentance over his sins with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is about David repenting over that sin of adultery and murder. But here's some things looking at the book of 2 Samuel that we can note about how to deal with sin. The first one is rebuke. Sin demands rebuke. We see that in 2 Samuel 7, chapter 12, where Nathan comes to David and rebukes him in his sin. We see that in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says the Word of God is... All scriptures breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for correction, for rebuking. Sin needs to be rebuked. We see from David's life the need for confession of sin. 2 Samuel uh, 12, verse 13, it says that David confesses that he has wronged the Lord. Again, in Psalm 51, David says to God, Against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. Now, he's not saying he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or anybody else. He's saying that our sin is primarily against God. And so we need to confess our sins. We see in chapter 14, verse 21, and again in chapter 19, that repentance is necessary. To confess our sin, to repent over our sin, that means to turn away from, to stop doing it. A fourth thing we see is that there needs to be a taking of responsibility for the consequences of our sin. Some sin has small consequences. Some sin, like David's, has massive consequences. And we see David taking the responsibility for the consequences of his sin. But then lastly, we see forgiveness. That there is forgiveness because of God's grace. You see, sometimes we get in the habit of treating people on the basis of their sin and not on the basis of forgiveness. Think about if David was in our church today. Would you let him serve anywhere? An adulterous murderer whose house was in disarray, whose children had raped each other and murdered each other. Would would you let that man serve in any capacity? And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. He was the best of the kings of Israel. He was the forerunner to King Jesus. We see the beautiful benefits of forgiveness. Sometimes we 
get in the habit of treating people on the basis of their sins, not on the basis of forgiveness. Now, there's much more to be said there. I want to close with these questions. What are you doing about your sin today? We've been confronted very clearly with David's sins. We've seen how he's responded. What are you doing? What am, what am I doing about my sins today? Like David, our sins can sometimes be hard to see. Sometimes we don't know when we're in sin. So who in your life has the freedom, who, ha- who is watching you enough to say, hey, you're in sin? Who has, the, who has that responsibility to rebuke you when you are in sin? Or have you put yourself outside of that protection? Have you pushed everyone away so that they can't rebuke you? Or that if they do, you won't hear it? See, one of the clearest truths we can take away from David is to be clear about ourselves now so that we can live in light of the truth that there is coming a judgment day for God. One of the clear, there, there are many things we can take from the story in the life of David. One of the clearest is that we need to deal with our sins now. Because when we deal with sin, the Bible tells us that there is grace upon grace upon grace. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of promises fulfilled. Now, while there's a lot that goes on in the books of First and Second Samuel, one thing shines forth. God is in total control. God will be seated upon the throne. God is a God of grace. Lord, thank you for a chance to study your word. Thank you for a chance to read these stories, to look into the lives of these people. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and forgiveness, that you are a God of restoration. Help us to see, O oh God, that there is life in you and in you alone. Lord, we praise you for the time we've had together. We pray all of this in your name.